you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, the first chapter. It's going to be the first page or two of your New Testament. We're going to be looking this morning at the end of Matthew chapter 1, Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus Christ. But as we look at it, I believe that you will see much more than merely an historical account. We'll be looking at verses 18 to 25. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would bless us with your word. That as we look into your word, we would see the glories of our Savior. That we would love him more and more. That we would long to serve him. And that we would know that he is indeed our great, loving God. This we pray. In Christ's precious name, amen. We come this morning to the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christmas story, one might say. It is a story that we have heard over and over again. And unlike some Bible stories, we know all the details. We know about Joseph and Mary traveling to Bethlehem. We know about the inn and the lack of room there. We know about the angels and their declarations in the heavens. We know about the shepherds and their wondering. We know about the wise men and the gifts that they bring. And all of this is reinforced by songs that we sing and know by heart. It's a story designed to give us hope. To give us a sense of good in an often very bad world. 
But if we're not careful, it's a story that can obscure the reality of what God is doing. We can get caught up in sentimentality, in the warm feelings that we have this time of year. We can think about the baby Jesus, about the setting, and about all of the details that we know. It's better that we think about the true meaning of the story. Why the story of Jesus' birth is there in the first place. Rather than think about how Jesus was born, let's think about who was born at Christmas. We will set the stage with the story. And then we will look at the two names of our Savior that are given in this passage, Emmanuel and Jesus. Each has a meaning that is important for us today and every day. Let's begin then by looking at the story that Matthew gives to us. He opens the scene. In verse 18, he's going to tell us about the birth of Jesus Christ. And interestingly enough, the word that Matthew uses for birth is one that you know in the Greek. It's Genesis, just like the first book of the Bible. He's going to tell us about the beginning of Jesus Christ on earth. Matthew uses the same word in verse 1 of this chapter to talk about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He's going to describe for us what is happening as Jesus comes and takes on human nature. But one thing you will notice from our text is that Matthew is not the one who gives details about the event. This evening at 6 o'clock, we're going to gather for a service of lessons and carols for Christmas Eve in which we will read the Christmas story from the Old Testament and from the Gospels and we'll sing well-known Christmas carols and we'll conclude with Silent Night and we'll dwell upon our Savior. But one thing you'll notice tonight is that most of our passages come from the Gospel of Luke, not the Gospel of Matthew. Luke is the historian. Matthew just gives us these few scant verses. There's really no details at all about Jesus' birth itself. Matthew instead is going to give us a theological reflection on Jesus' birth. The why of Jesus' birth. And he begins by telling us about Joseph and Mary's relationship. He sets the stage by telling us that they were betrothed. Now, we have to understand what this means. In ancient Israel, a betrothal was not quite a marriage, but it wasn't an engagement either. It was actually more akin to a marriage than an engagement in the sense that if you wanted to dissolve a betrothal, you had to file for divorce in the courts in Israel. Today, if you break off an engagement, you simply hand back the ring. Or don't, as the case may be. You simply send an email to those who were invited. You're free that calendar day. No need to save the date any longer. It's actually not nearly 
as big of a matter as it would have been even 50 or 60 years ago in America, let alone in ancient Israel. Now, this betrothal was not a God-ordained custom. It's not as if God, in His law, said, you shall have betrothal, and this is what betrothal shall look like. No, it was a part of Hebrew culture. It was something that had come up from a culture that valued marriage greatly. It was a commitment like unto marriage. It showed that even before the man and the woman came together, even before they began living together, sharing their life together, before the coming of any children, they had a commitment to each other that could not be easily broken. And God, in His law, did indeed give some instructions about this custom. You can find that in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Deuteronomy. But what's important about this is how this custom of betrothal affects Joseph. And what we'll see later. So Matthew sets the stage with this. And then, in verse 18, he tells us in a simple way about a miracle. He speaks quickly, almost nonchalantly about this. He says in verse 18, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, the text is clear. Mary conceived from the Holy Spirit. But we don't really have any details about it. We immediately, as we read this, want to know more. What does this mean? How could someone conceive from the Holy Spirit? How could this be true? Now, Mary, of course, gets a more detailed explanation about this in Luke chapter 1 because she asks the question that's obvious to her, how will this be? And the angel then proceeds to explain it. Now, I don't know if Joseph was your typical male that didn't want to get the details of the story. Or whether he did ask, and it's not recorded. But Matthew makes it clear to us that this is a statement of fact. He does not feel the need to prove it to us. He does not give us a litany of reasons why this is true. He simply states it, and we are to believe it. And I think that's significant. And this then causes a struggle for Joseph. Because we're introduced to Joseph in verse 19. He is Mary's husband, Matthew calls him. And again, you see this blurring of lines between betrothal and marriage. He's actually called a husband here. Even though they weren't living together yet. And the marriage had not yet happened. Now, let me say this for just a moment. Do you see how seriously they took marriage in those days? The commitment to marry was binding. In our day and age, marriage is not taken very seriously at all. There are whole numbers of people that live together and have children and share finances and never bother to get married. They never think about marriage. There are others who get married and at the drop of a hat dissolve their marriage. But you see, here in the scriptures, we see the importance of marriage. It's so important that even before it has been consummated, it requires 
a dissolution. Now we're told what kind of a man Joseph was. He was a just man. We might also translate it a righteous man. Now, you should not get the impression that Joseph was therefore sinless, that he was perfect, that he did everything right all of the time. That's not what Matthew's telling us. When the Bible uses this language, it is using shorthand to describe a person who is a follower of God, who believes God's word, who does what God commands. And so that makes him a just and righteous man. He's not a rebel against the Lord. He seeks as much as he can, by God's grace, to do what God commands. But you'll also notice that he was a man marked by love and compassion. His righteousness, his justness, did not make him uncompassionate. He sees the situation before him and he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't want to harm Mary. He doesn't want to cause her shame. He's at a loss because while he is righteous and true, he's loving and kind. So what could Joseph do? Well, Joseph finds out about the pregnancy. Matthew and Luke, neither of them tell us how he finds out. It could be that Mary came to Joseph after the angel had come to her. When she came back from Elizabeth's, she could have gone to Joseph and said, Joseph, I've got to tell you something. And it could very well be that she spoke to Joseph and Joseph was at a loss. He couldn't believe her. Obviously, everything before him would say otherwise. He hadn't had any previous word from God. He didn't have any expectation that this would happen. The only thing he knew for a certainty was that he was not the father. It could have been that Mary showed up simply and was showing signs of her pregnancy. That happens at different points for different ladies. But there is a point in time when even men feel safe to say to a woman, how far along are you? Men, don't ever do that cold. Make sure that your wife tells you that she's expecting. But there's a sign that a woman is with child. And so the point is, everyone is going to know. And everyone is going to know that Joseph is not the father. Because they haven't been married. This goes beyond Mary. It's not just shame potentially for Mary. It's shame for Joseph. So what does he do? Well, he could have had her publicly shamed. He could have had her dragged before the elders and accused and gotten an official bill of divorce. Perhaps she might even have been stoned for her sin if she could not prove that she was violated or attacked. That would have been well within Joseph's rights under the law of God. But he was unwilling to do that. Now think about Joseph with that. He was unwilling to do that before he knew what had really happened. And so he decided, Matthew tells us, to do it quietly. But he's still at a loss exactly what will happen and what this will look like. And so 
He is considering these things. He's mulling them over and over. He can't get them out of his mind. He's thinking. And he does what, I don't know about you, but happens often to me when I'm lost in thought and have to go over things in my head every which way. I get tired and I fall asleep. And we know this because the angel comes to Joseph in a dream. Joseph is at a loss. This is not a man who knows exactly what to do and doesn't think this is a big problem and will execute judgment. No, he'd worked himself into an exhaustion and fallen asleep. And the angel comes to him in a dream and first gives a directive. Do not fear. These are three of the best words in the Bible. And they occur over and over and over again. If you search those exact words, you will find dozens of instances of them from God to his people. Do not fear. Everything will be okay, Joseph. Let me explain what is going on. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit What the angel is saying to Joseph is, there's no conflict here between doing what is right and showing love. You can maintain your integrity and you can take Mary as your wife. I find this fascinating. Because what it means is, even before Jesus was born, he is showing that holiness and love are not in conflict. And so the angel gives this command to Joseph, what he is to do, and then he gives an explanation of why he can do this, that she is with child from the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph does something remarkable, at least remarkable in our day. Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. Joseph obeyed. He took God at his word. He didn't question. He didn't say, give me 48 reasons why this is true. He didn't say, find someone else. He didn't say, I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. He simply heard the word of God and obeyed. Now that is a good Christmas story. It's a good Christmas story for all of us. Now, I know that as soon as I say that, there are a bunch of parents nodding heads. Yes. Preacher, tell the kids. Yes. They need to obey. And kids, you do. But you know what? So do your parents. So does your pastor. We need to hear God's word and obey it. You know, there's an old saying that's found itself on bumper stickers. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That's a lie. God said it, that settles it. I obey it. That should be the new bumper sticker. Maybe I can make a few dollars off of those. That's the new bumper stickers. So this is the story, the setting, in which we find now the first of our two names. In verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. 
So what is about to happen here is the fulfillment of something that was much bigger than Joseph. Right at the beginning here, Joseph's world is crashing in on him. He had been thinking about his wife and the family he would have and where they would live and how he would work and what he would do. And then he sees that Mary is with child and it all comes crashing down. And when that happens, if we're honest with ourselves, our world becomes bigger than everyone else. We lose sight of other people's problems. We lose sight of our nation. We lose sight of the bigger issues in life. And we're only consumed with what's in front of us. But God reminds Joseph, and therefore us, that he's bigger than our problems. Look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now this would have been a shock to Joseph. But God is telling him that something bigger is happening, that God is on the move. Now, surely Joseph would have known the passage from Isaiah chapter 7. But it's another thing to be told that it's happening right before your eyes. Joseph would have been a student of the scriptures He would have longed for that verse to be fulfilled. He would have believed upon the Messiah. He would have wanted to know that there would come a day when the forgiveness of sins would be found in God's King and Messiah. And now he's being told, he's here, Joseph. He's right before you. God is fulfilling it. And it's not just a prophecy that's being fulfilled. I think sometimes... When we as Christians get a little bit overly agitated about our apologetics method, we go through Christmas time trying to find all of the prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus. Isaiah 7, check. Micah 5, check. Malachi 3, check. Deuteronomy 18, check. And we can go through dozens of them. Because it's true. The Old Testament over and over and over again predicts the coming of the Savior. But the whole point of this prophecy was to let us know that God was going to do something marvelous. God didn't give us the prophecy so we would have a killer argument to give to non-Christians. He gave us the prophecy so that we would know in advance that he was going to perform a wonder. His plan was to send a child. But not just any child, because the child's name would be Emmanuel, God with us, God himself. And if you remember Isaiah just a few chapters after this prophecy, would go on to describe this child in godlike terms. His name would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And this child would come in such a way that only God could bring it about. Matthew tells us, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, I want you to note two things here. We've seen this in other texts. The word behold should get our attention. It's decidedly for that purpose. 
I wouldn't attempt to retranslate that. But I think if I were going to try to modernize it, it'd be something like, Yo! Listen up! Pay attention! And now what are we listening to? We're listening to the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And so we automatically ask ourselves the question, how could a virgin conceive? Now here is where we see the world's hatred for the true Christmas story. The world and the culture will like stories of eggnog and perfect snowfalls and family dinners. But you talk about a virgin conceiving. They don't want any part of it. As a matter of fact, there have been many attempts throughout the last century or two to retranslate this verse, both in Isaiah and here, to replace the word virgin with the word young woman. Because obviously that takes the miraculous completely out of the text. Now what they don't get is, why would anyone prophesy, behold, a young woman's going to have a child? Forgive me, but whoop-de-doo. <clears throat> We've got three or four in our congregation going to have a child. What's so big about that? But you see, they do it because they don't want God in the picture. Because they don't want Jesus to be God with us. They want him to be just a teacher, just a guide, just a helpful person. But that's not who Jesus is. Why would we expect God with us to be unremarkable? That in and of itself should show us that something remarkable and God-driven is happening. But there is not just a miracle of conception here going on. What Matthew is telling us is that only Jesus is the God-man. Only Jesus is perfectly God and perfectly man. That he exists in two natures, not mixed, not combined, not separated, in one person. Now we can state that as a truth, but we can't completely understand it. There's some truths of the scripture that go beyond our understanding because they're beyond our experience. Have you ever met a person with two natures? Have you ever met a being existing in more than one person? Well, God exists in more than one person. He's triune. But we, we can't explain this. We can't come up with examples for it. Our language falls short because it's beyond our experience and comprehension. It's a great mystery of the faith. And so we simply repeat what the Bible says and declare that it is true. The Athanasian Creed puts it this way. We believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of the substance of his mother, born in the world, perfect God and perfect man of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, who, although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into the flesh, 
but by taking the manhood into God. One altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For as a reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ. Now that is a mouthful. And I don't expect you to memorize what I've just said. But it would make for a wonderful Christmas Eve meditation to go home and on your phone, Google the Athanasian Creed and go through that and see all of the great truths of the scriptures that it is summarizing. And what it is summarizing is that Jesus is God. He is man. He is God with us. That's why he deserves the name Emmanuel. It describes who Jesus is. That's why that name is important. It's not something Jesus is striving to be. It's who he is. It's the exact opposite of what we do with children. You all know and you're going to be entertained for months on end with sermon illustrations about my granddaughter. Just live with it. She was born a little bit more than a week ago. And she was given a name. Lillian Eve. And that's a name that she's growing into. It's not because of what she's done. It's not even necessarily because of who she is. It's of what her parents hope her to be. And what they will raise her to be. And the same is true of your name and the same is true of my name. Not so Jesus. He is declared Emmanuel because that is who he is. He is God with us. And this is the cornerstone of redemption. Only by being both God and man can Jesus be our Savior. The Apostle John understands this. In his first letter, the fourth chapter, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of Antichrist. What John is saying is, if you do not confess and believe that Jesus is God, you are anti-Christ. You do not know the Lord. Now, I know we don't like theological exams. I know we like to speak about the heart and people's sensibility and people's motives. John says, if you don't believe that Jesus is God and man, you can't be saved. Because only a God-man can save us. That's why. It's not a theological test you must pass. It's a reality that you must confess. But there's a great blessing to us in this. One of my favorite commentators is a man by the name of Matthew Henry, a 17th century Puritan. And he says this on Matthew 1. By the light of nature... We see God as God above us. By the light of the law, we see him as God against us. But by the light of the gospel, we see him as Emmanuel, God with us. That's Jesus' name. But if the first name tells us, who the Savior is, the second name tells us what he came to do. And once again, there is no accident here. Just like John the Baptist was given his name by an angel, so was Jesus. Now, we see here in Matthew 1 
that Joseph is told his name will be Jesus. If we went to Luke 1, we would see that the angel tells Mary his name will be Jesus. And we will see in Luke that when they bring Jesus to be publicly pronounced and named and circumcised, they say his name is Jesus. Now this would have come as a surprise to Jesus' family. Because if Matthew's genealogy earlier in Matthew 1 is Jesus' genealogy through Joseph, that is the royal line, the line of succession, of kingship, Joseph could have named his son Jacob or Matan or Eleazar, all very good pedigreed Jewish names. But instead, he says his name is Jesus. And his name is Jesus, the angel explains in verse 21, for he will save his people from their sins. Literally, Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. The Lord is salvation. Now, do you see how these two explanations go together? His name is Jesus because he will save. And that name means the Lord will save. And so it perfectly fits Emmanuel. Jesus is the Lord God who saves. And so this name will give us the nature of his mission. From the very beginning, it was declared why Jesus was to be born. It was not for the reasons that are sometimes suggested. People say, well, Jesus is famous. Jesus came into the world to teach us to live in harmony with each other. That he came to give us encouragement to live the best way that we can. To make us feel better about life, we can look to Jesus and be encouraged. No! Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. God takes sin so seriously that he will send his son to resolve the problem of sin. God will not wink at sin. He will not forget about sin. He will not accept more good than bad from us. If he would, then Jesus would never have been born. Now, we don't often think about it at Christmas. But Christmas tells us that we are sinners who need a Savior. And the only solution to sin is to be saved by God with us, Jesus. Now notice what the angel does not say. He doesn't say that sin is a man-made concept that you should get rid of. Now we have a world that wants to do away with the idea of sin, guilt, and shame. Now, it doesn't want to resolve sin. It just simply wants to bury it under a pile of stuff so we pretend it's not there. The world says, don't dwell on your sin. You need to have a better self-esteem. You need to build yourself up. The angel doesn't say, he's come to do a marvelous political work. Now, you may notice it. The angel didn't say, Joseph, name him Rex. That is the Latin word for king. Because he will be a king. 
The angel doesn't say, he will resolve people's problems so that they can flourish. No. But rather, he says, his name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Do you see how seriously God takes sin? He sends his son, and his son has a people. You see, even before Jesus' birth, God is declaring his love for sinners. We know that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And that is strengthened by this statement that God has taken to himself a people. It is not just that Jesus came theoretically to save some random people. No, he came for his own. He came to save a people for himself. You need to hear this morning that there is no randomness in salvation. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, know that God knew you first. And that the Father, in spite of knowing you and knowing who you were, loves you. That he sent his son to save you. And that son came and lived and died to save you. You are the fulfillment of the promise of God. That is good news. And if you say, but pastor, I don't think that applies to me. I just came here before brunch. I was just brought here because that's what the family wanted to do. Well, you can hear that that promise is for you. Because the promise is for whosoever believes. There's no prerequisite. And by believing, you show that God is at work in your life. You show that God has known you, that God loves you, that God sent his son to die for you. And all you need to do is believe. Just like Joseph did. You don't need to have everything figured out. I'm sure Joseph did not have everything figured out. I'm sure he said to himself, what am I going to tell my family? How are we going to have a public wedding? What are we going to do? Don't think that Joseph has everything in clean lines here. Your life does not need to be perfect to come to Jesus. You just need to believe that what God has said is true. And that Jesus is the Savior you need. All of history is a mystery apart from Matthew 1, 21. There could be no resolution to the horror of sin apart from Jesus. Jesus says so himself in Luke 19. He says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In John 10, he says, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And Paul, in a wonderful phrase that is well worth memorizing, says in 1 Timothy 1.15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Is that your confession? You see, Paul's confession was not, I'm the greatest church planter ever in the history of the world. Paul's confession was not, I wrote half the New Testament. Paul's confession was not, I am the hardest worker in the kingdom you can find. His confession was, I'm a sinner that Jesus came to save. 
This Christmas, remember that you are a sinner who needs grace. A rebel who is separated from God and who does not need warm, fuzzy feelings this season. You don't need encouragement to do better. You need God to come down and to be with you. To be saved from your sins. The sins that make you guilty and separate you from God. God takes your sin very seriously. So seriously, in fact, that he sent his son, Emmanuel, Jesus, to save you from your sins. This Christmas, remember that you have a Savior. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. His name is Jesus, the Lord is salvation. Without the incarnation, there is no substitute. Without the substitute, there is no sacrifice. Without the sacrifice, there is no hope. But you can have hope this Christmas. Your hope is found in the Savior. Only in Jesus. Let's pray.